Conversations of Coffee podcast. Today I'm joined in the studio with Senator Lynn Ruan. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on. You're very thank welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm going to introduce you as a politician, social activist, yes. but most importantly, one of us. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> People like All us. those titles and names, they are important and, and they're massively important in how far you've come and how much time and effort you've put into your further education and your outside studies. And I'd like to kind of hear how your journey has been, even from your younger years giving birth at 15 and yeah. you know what was it like well I suppose for, like I mean even going back to I suppose becoming a mother at 15 you learn very at a very young age how to be resourceful and how to try and manage your life as both a teenager and a mother mm-hmm. um, who probably didn't have an easy ride of it in the years um, leading up to to pregnancy so I think everything I learned in those years of being a mother helped me apply myself in terms of um you know running addiction services and 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 engage in education and um i think also it's it's not completely it's not completely on me how i turned out like it wasn't like that i made some sort of decision and choice that everything was just going to work out i i had support and i had mentors and i had people that didn't pull the ladder away behind them when they made it and they made sure that I had a space where I could reach my potential. Um, in the early years of um, pregnant, in the early years of Jordan being born, like I mean, my family, our dad's family, um, people helped me and not everybody has that. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I tell my story so much is because I don't want people using me as an example of somebody that has achieved, but not actually kind of paint that picture of how I achieved and why I achieved and it wasn't because I just woke up and decided I was going to do better with my life there was actually a lot of factors like community education like family support like having a roof over my head um, like having someone to watch my child if I needed to do a night course and not every teen mother has that same level of support mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so I didn't want my story being used as a weapon against mm-hmm. people like me as if there's something wrong with them that they couldn't do some of the stuff that I was doing because mm-hmm. many different factors were getting in their way, you mm-hmm. know. So I think when, you know, going for president of the students' union was in one way a difficult task, but in another way an enjoyable, fun task mm-hmm. because all my other tasks to date were jumping barriers and jumping obstacles and all these hurdles, yeah. hurdle after hurdle and trauma and pain mm. and losing lots of friends and addiction just wiping out so many of my community. So I had all these difficult times, but yet like becoming the student union presidency is like this one moment in time that actually didn't come with the same risk that I'd ris- lived the rest of my life with. All that was going to happen there was I was going to lose or I was going to win, mm-hmm. you know? And all my choices in life up until that point c- came with more risk mm-hmm. because you're, I was trying to succeed. I was trying to get somewhere. I was trying to, you know, stay away from drugs. I was trying to, you know, um, move past m- different stuff that had happened to me during my teenage years. So actually, even though that looks like a defining moment, the presidency, it was probably easier in terms of... The various other challenges. Yeah, 
yeah. But it's what people see on the outside, and it's always a picture can be painted. It's a bit like social media. I mean, we only see what we put up and allow other people to see, but the things that are going on in the background and the various challenges we're going through every day, we don't put that up. Like, I mean, you had so much going on, and you were doing all this at such a young age, and I agree and I love what you're saying that it's impossible to be able to say I've done it all on my own because you're at to give them credit and you're at to give an acknowledgement yeah. to all these people that made you and helped you get to where you wanted to be and probably become the person you were destined yeah. to always be. So yeah. that, if anything, kind of probably motivated you and pushed you, didn't it? It did completely motivate me. I mean, I was very destined, uh, determined is the word, to cr create a different narrative for the generations within my household that came after me. Mm -hmm. I wanted my kids to know that college was an option, not something that they had to fight for. Mm -hmm. And we had hard times growing up. Like, I mean, you can imagine what it's like being reared by a, a teenager that's also trying to grow up, like, you know? So mm -hmm. um, Jordana always jokes that she was the she was the practice child, you know? So Jaylin, mm -hmm. that's younger, it gets an yeah. easier ride. She was the <laughs> like guinea the pig, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so good. That's a great way of putting it, actually. It is the first pancake. <laughs> and Jordana would joke about that as well. She's great, like, you know, and Jordana has helped me so much make the decisions that I've made. She's so philosophical and deep and she's so determined. And she, if anybody throughout my whole life has pushed me along she has held me accountable because she has seen me at my worst and seen me at my best so when i became the president of the union and that's why i try and give credit because i know there's people in my life that were going to go she was insufferable and look at her now like everyone's praising her and they're going she's bleeding wrecked her heads for years so like i think like with jordan she held me accountable for my shit at every mm -hmm. like when you know if I, if how I was parenting was too harsh or, you know, um, just, she just, she shone a mirror up to me my entire life and made me do better mm -hmm. and continues. And, and, and Jaylin is more like me, like more rebellious and um, cheeky. And, but Jordan was just always, uh, she was always that push, I suppose, for me to sh also not only show that I could do it because I, like society would have, had me as a statistic, you know, another teen pregnancy, oh, what'll happen then, what'll happen that child, dragged mm -hmm. up, you know, that kind of narrative. And I always wanted to prove that wrong. Did that add for, I was going to say, did it add for to your feeling? Yeah, Definitely. Totally, yeah. totally. Because I wasn't going to allow somebody tell me mm -hmm. my life was going to be a certain way because I was becoming a mother. Mm -hmm. um, and I know in Ireland how hard women have found it to, to raise their children and you know they've had their children taken away from them they've been locked up in in laundries and and, and industrial schools and and that was in the 80s mm -hmm. and in the early 90s mm -hmm. and here i was in the millennium year in the same situation that them women were only the generation before me and they didn't get the chance to do what i was getting the chance to do as mm -hmm. a mother a single mother so i really i i became really aware of that you know um as i was reaching say my 20s how different things could have been for mm -hmm. me had I been born in a different generation or to a different family that wasn't mm -hmm. as supportive. So that fueled me as well because I did feel like I had a point to prove. Mm -hmm. And I always felt, I always felt as a kid, I, I could do whatever I wanted to do. It was society that tried to take that away from me. I loved, I watched a talk you'd done there recently and you were saying at the beginning of it, you were in like play school, you had to be moved or something because <laughs> 
you were basically saying how unfair the situation was with the toys. Yeah. You felt they should have been segregated and separated and everybody got their fair share. Yeah. I mean, you're a toddler mm. and having these thoughts. Yeah. Surely it's just in your yeah. DNA and it's in your blood and definitely with the area you're from, coming from Tallaght, hard working, genuinely yeah. good people yeah. that just want the best for everyone around them. Yeah. But you're going into an environment where, no, this is mine and yeah. all these people are just mine, mine, mine. You were saying, no, hang on a second. Yeah. At that age. Socialism was in me from the <laughs> offset. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, like, I mean, I think I used to pick, from a very young age, I picked up, if I picked up on unfairness even if I couldn't always articulate what that was. Mm -hmm. And I could tell if I was being treated differently or I could tell if something was unfair. Um, I didn't always have the language to put to that. And sometimes that came out then as violence or anger because nobody was hearing what I was saying mm -hmm. like that. I should be allowed to play with that too or I should be allowed to play on the boys' soccer team at lunchtime or I should be whatever. Wherever I felt like I was being left out of, I was always felt like I had to penetrate my way into that and I, I, that's something I always felt in me gut and I think my entire life I have felt things on that level where the understanding of it came much later and I suppose when you grow up with a sense of gut feeling about things we're taught in a way to not trust that don't trust that natural sense that you have that something's wrong or that you're not being treated very well and, and, and it materialises into relationships and stuff as well and you start to doubt that feeling that you have and I've come to know and I, I'm 35 now and it's only in the last year, six months, year I'm going to myself my gut was always right and yet I allowed people dismiss my gut feelings on things because I didn't know how to articulate it in a certain way or I didn't know how to explain it in a certain mm -hmm. way and everybody was relying on me to be able to match words with my natural sense of mm -hmm. does something unjust happening here you know so I've really gone back to that feeling that I would have had as that preschool child that just acted on that injustice without questioning myself without feeling the need to constantly explain my decisions or why I work on certain things or why I'm passionate about certain things. I don't feel the need to justify my existence in politics and education, any of them things anymore. I'm going purely on, I'm here, I deserve to be here and if there's something I feel is wrong with this situation, I'm going to name it. Mm -hmm. You know, and, 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 and I really all of a sudden in the last year feel really connected to that little girl that didn't have that voice and just had that instinct where mm -hmm. now I have that voice to match the instinct and mm -hmm. I kind of feel like well they can't stop me now like you know and I think it's it's amazing what you're saying but it's also fascinating that you have the platform now mm. to express that on a wider scale like being in a situation where you know you're from a working class area but you're in a position now where you can actually lay your eyes on a bill or a policy and that in my lifetime I never heard of that you know happen until people before profit or until all these um, political figures that are coming from the areas where they actually see what's happening on the ground because mm -hmm. it's like anything it's like going into an organization and working in it and managing it and changing this and implementing this and that you can't really tell unless you've been on the floor yourself no. working and you have you yeah. definitely have and I would like to talk a little bit more about how you kind of you know Jordan was born but when did it just begin where you said right I'm gonna go and continue my education when did that just happen so it happened at different points in different ways. Okay. Um, there wasn't ever one big um, kind of thing. Like before I had Jordan, I knew that if I 
um, and I've talked about this a lot because I wrote about it in the book so I I, 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 I wrote a list when I was younger like a, a plan of how I was going to live my life and it was after a lot of my friends had passed away and I was faced with that idea that Jesus we don't live very long around here maybe I should experience every single thing I need to experience because that might happen to me so then I just tried everything but on that list was that if I lived long enough to certain ages I would find the career that I was most passionate about and do that I would I would go to college if that's what I wanted to do so from when I was about 13 or 14 I knew at certain points along my journey if I got to them that I, I knew I was going to engage in particular things, you know. So I returned to education at 15, 16 with Jordan. She went into the creche and I went into um, in the same building on Kassan and I done a two year course there for young mothers, for young teenage mothers. And um, and then I went and started working in the addiction services and then I would return and do some night classes on addiction or studying, you know, the, the studying key working and counselling and studying acupuncture and I trained in acupuncture, auricular acupuncture for detox and so I, my educational journey has been a lifelong one mm -hmm. and it still is, I'm doing a master's now so like I don't see my only education being the Trinity education, I see it as being my education in Killinarden and Jobstown and IT doing my addiction studies and Bluebell doing running the addiction services and you know so Trinity was thus the traditional idea of what education is but also allowed me to understand other sectors of society that I knew I was battling against in a sense to be able to be heard so politics like the amount of politicians that have come through Trinity the amount of economists the amount of people in the legal profession in the judiciary in business and I kind of felt they spoke a language that I didn't speak mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to get it in my addiction studies or any of them places and I went to Trinity purely for that. So what Trinity gave me was the articulation to the things that I already knew and it just became an extension of my learning in terms of being able to vocalise everything that has happened in my lived experience, everything that's happening to my community and the communities that we're in here because of structural inequality and I could take that and I could say it in a way that they could no longer deny me a place at the table mm -hmm. because up until that point they speak in a language that you can't access so they kind of make out that you don't know what you're talking about so they exclude you from the conversation by using tool as a language, a, a language as a tool to do so so now I have the lived experience I have the compassion, I have the empathy, I have the heart, I have the determination, but now I also have your language and you're no longer monopolising that language. Mm -hmm. So here I am and I'm going to keep saying what's happening. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. Trinity, I feel, is what gave me that. But it was my experiences and my profession in addiction and community work up until that point that gave me all the substance that I have in terms of people and fairness. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. It makes a whole, it's so, what I'm thinking with the different courses and the different diplomas and different, you know, uh, experiences, it's like branches off a tree. Yeah. So we won't even call Trinity the tree, but that was kind of the main, I suppose, part of your, um, how would you say, part of your success in getting mm. into government. But yes, totally. You couldn't have got into government without the people and you yeah. couldn't have gained all that knowledge and experience and connections and yeah. networking and friendships. Yeah without being in the communities which you are and exactly. I think that's why I was trying to say you've answered the question perfectly because I was saying some of these people aren't in the communities they're not in the yeah. environments they're not getting to see the real experiences that are going on yeah. you did and you lived some of them yeah like a lot of politicians speak in the abstract yeah so they speak about 
inequality or they speak about drugs they're speaking about it as this other thing over there mm. that's happening that mm. they've read about or they've heard about mm. or one of their constituents told them about but there's something different when you're speaking from experience mm -hmm. you can't argue and deny someone their experience mm -hmm. so if i stand up in the cha chamber and i'm talking about addiction from a raw place if i'm talking about why young men enter drug dealing and how that's born from the same thing as drug uses, right? From poverty, from lack of opportunity, um, not having ways to succeed in any other way economically. Well then, you know, if I'm talking about that and I'm talking from my own experience, I'm talking about my friends, I'm talking about my community, other politicians that think they know about a subject can't argue against your lived reality you're mm -hmm. not talking in the abstract you're not talking statistics you're not talking the theory of inequality mm -hmm. you're talking the reality of it you know and mm -hmm. there's something quite powerful when you bring people with experiences into politics and there's plenty of them like i mean francis black is in our group and alice mary higgins and they've all worked in the background of addiction and with older people and with disabilities and with alzheimer's and they've worked um on uh, in social justice issues so when you hear people talking with that knowledge, it's very, very different mm -hmm. than a politician that is a career politician. Mm -hmm. So literally they set out to make a profession out of being a politician, straight through student union politics, into the youth wings and all of that. And I don't think that should happen. I think people should literally go away, live a life, and bring all that you know about that life into politics, mm -hmm. you know? I don't and all of it, all the, the different experiences amalgamate, yeah. and then we come up with one, a diversity. not a theory, just one conclusion yeah. to how. Yeah. So, right, you bring something to the table, yeah. I bring something to the table. Everybody then adds value. Because exactly. Well, if you have a bill in front of you, right? If you have a piece of legislation in front of you, for a hundred years since the since the, since the beginning of our state, and 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 then even since um, the constitution, like we we've had middle class men write our laws write our constitution and the Catholic Church imposed their views on all of those, right? You haven't had migrants, you haven't had travellers, you haven't had working class people and up until a certain point you had no women either and you obviously still have a disproportionate amount of women. So every single law in this country has been written through the lens of a middle class man. So if you have everyone around the table you begin to to, 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 to proof that legislation so you have your class proof it, your gender proof it, your equality proof it, your, your proof it from a traveller perspective, from a migrant perspective and until you have a piece of legislation that has had the diversity that exists in society be able to actually contribute to policy and contribute to legislation it will always only benefit people in power and not actually people in general mm -hmm. and politics is supposed to provide a better society for all and we're supposed to leave we're supposed to leave the world and our society and our country better than we found it and if you're a politician that doesn't leave that better than you found it well then you, ju you just shouldn't be there you know you just you just shouldn't be there at mm -hmm. all like because the benefit is at the end of the day for the people coming after us exactly and after them exactly. and that's what i'm kind of thinking now because i love the way you brought up about in working class areas and in poverty there is this element of drug dealers and drug users and you know there's this kind of i suppose depressive state in some areas where everybody's just it's the, it's its own economy really isn't it so yeah. if the drug dealers selling to the users who who fund their you know lifestyle and their um 
their income, that the, their only source of income, because they can't just apply for these jobs that we see other people in. And some are fortunate enough to get out of the area and do well and go to college and, you know. Yeah. So, my my biggest issue in terms of, I suppose, the Taoiseach is um, his real lack of understanding of the complexities of a class system or that class exists. And for me, poverty is immoral, especially in a country that has such wealth. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's I agree with that for him, for him. Like, so when I was in the chamber, just as an example, I'm uh, I'm obviously paraphrasing what I said now, but it was I was I went to speak at a in a school, uh, Alexandra, it's a private school. And the, the young women there had like a, an event on. They asked me to speak at it and I did. And I went and it was a lovely event. The students are amazing and they had a great lineup. But the girl, the woman before me, and I, this is what I'd said in the chamber, I was trying to get them to understand the moral significance of class and how class is killing us. And, he's, and I said to him, um, I, I spoke to him about the equality of environment and the equality of outcome. So it's not about opportunity. It's about all our environments need to look the same if we're going to have the same opportunity. Mm -hmm. So if my environment doesn't look like your environment, well, then we're, it's unequal completely. You can tell me of the option there to go to college, but I don't really if I'm standing on a, a quicksand, mm -hmm. you know. And I said to him that when the girl spoke on front of me, she spoke about our 10 best friends and how our 10 best friends from when she went to Alexandra College, which I think is Dublin 6, um, we're all off in all around the world studying or working in different areas of um, fashion and you know just great jobs and she said to the she, her advice to the girls was about you know staying connected with their friends that they make in school when they go on and I got a bit emotional because I was like wow that's a great story about our 10 best friends they're doing amazing things and then I could talk and it was the week that my friend had died uh, another friend had died from an overdose and I was like going I can't tell that same story. She's Dublin 6, I'm Dublin 24. We're 20 minutes apart. She lives 20 minutes down the road from where I live. Her 10 best friend story is a, a lovely, empowering one. It's a nice one. And it should be one that I'm able to tell as well. Why I'm just as intelligent as her, smart as her, funny as her. She was um, a, an amazing speaker. But I want to, why, why aren't we grown up in Killinarden or Drimna or Inchicore Corby being able to stand on a stage and say that our 10 best friends? Instead, I'd be saying prison, on drugs, struggling to get by or working in low paid employment or, you know, like people just struggling and people just dying. And that would be my 10 best friend story. And then I spoke to him about the moral significance of class and the, the equality of environment. And he basically, you know, he didn't even... He didn't even comment on anything that I just said. He basically started speaking about Venezuela when in his reply. So he was basically talking about communism. So he was basically taking what I'd said and framed it in a political ideology of communism and didn't actually hear anything what I had said. And I, he spoke about the equality of outcome he, because he doesn't understand the class system. And because Leo says like, you know, about getting up early in the morning and getting loans off your parents to buy a mortgage, like he literally does not get, he does not get how people are struggling to live their lives and survive day to day. And I do believe that he thinks that he's Taoiseach all on his own merit. It's all, it's, it's like this false idea of meritocracy. So that he thinks it was his decision and it doesn't matter where he was from or where he was born or who he is, he would still be able to make good choices and good decisions to get him where he is, ignoring all the external factors of the trauma 
um, that can exist in communities that have been destroyed by by inequality. Mm-hmm. And when I think kind of when you're saying with, when he responded to your comments, do you think there was just a lack of relation there? He just couldn't relate to what you were saying. He just had no, he couldn't even put that into his mind. Because I can, I can, mm-hmm. I've lost family members to drug abuse and suicide and, you know, I can relate to it. But being somebody that would be like, wow, I can't even imagine that happening to me. Do you think it that was, was the, the issue there? But some people can't imagine that it happened to them, but can acknowledge that it's happening to True, others. True, good point, good point. So it's about being able to recognise your own privilege. Yeah. So people can be privileged and people can do well, but people can turn around and say, I really get that I have had all these positive chances in life because I was born by poor luck in a different community uh, to a family that had professionals in the background. I know I'm a doctor because my father and my grandfather before me was a doctor or I know that I was able to buy this home here because my parents had saved enough to be able to help me get on the property market. You know, you've been able to acknowledge when the wind is at your back, mm-hmm. but he, he, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think in some cases, like those situations, people have had the paths paved for them. Exactly. They nearly only have to just walk down them exactly. and show up. Not all the time, but no. sometimes. Yeah. In some of our situations and some of our experiences, and I'll say our because I've came from a situation where I would have witnessed this as a younger yeah. kid. Now, I did, fortunately enough, see it and then realise, look, I want to try, similar to your yeah. fire to your field, similar to having a great... Um, foundation and a great you know great parent and a great family and friends and, and support around me but um and i'd like to kind of talk about because we're talking about our areas and our communities and then you, you look at the other kind of element of it there's another pillar and then there's people that don't have a community and there's people that don't have a roof over their head and we're approaching christmas now and we're all running around town and we're worrying about what we're going into the shops and we're running into the Jervis and they've only one of this thing left and we're running over to the other side of the Graben Street, out to Dundrum, money, 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 worrying, worrying, stressing. And then we're passing and walking over people and we're queuing up for the ATMs while there's people lying in sleeping bags with a cup in their hand. Like, I mean, a lot of the men that I've worked with in the homeless sector over the years, because it was mostly men, you know, in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the demographic has obviously massively changed and, and we see obviously a huge amount of um, families now and, and older people, um, but in all the men that I've worked with in over the years, they've sometimes had to just really put lots of layers of armour on them mm. to desensitise themselves and cli- they've acclimatised somewhat mm. to, their, to the suffering that they mm. feel. Um, and there is some great um, hostels in town, long, long, LTAs they're called, so it's long-term accommodation. So there's long-term accommodation, there's STAs, which is short-term accommodation, and then there's rollover beds. But a lot of the men that I worked with would have been in LTAs, which is long-term accommodation. Mm-hmm. And they would have created a sense of community around them in them because you have the same staff every day, you have the same um, residents most of the time, and you don't have to leave in the mornings, you know? And Yeah, that's true. At 10 o'clock, everyone out, yeah, it's not the and, case. And you, have, you, you would have some health interventions. You'd have people managing your... Um, are reminding you, you know, about your, you, you might have an appointment in James's or you might have whatever appointment coming up. And in my time working there, it meant that I got to work with the same men sometimes for six months or 12 months. And, you know, the character and the honesty and the humour and the lives that they've lived, um, some heartbreak and some just, I admire them and and I have learned so much from them Mm -hmm. that being in politics is like, you know, when we're talking about rotten apples, 
I think maybe there is rotten apples, right? But I think how we judge that is how responsible are you in terms of your decision making? So if you're somebody that has nothing and you make a decision to, to rob, to, to allow you have access to food or clothes or whatever it may be, and because you are in poverty or you're on the streets or whatever it may be. But what about if you are extremely privileged? You don't have an issue with resources. You don't have an issue where access to an education, where access to a home, but you choose to behave immorally, but you are less punished for it. So why color crime? So who's more responsible? The, 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 the person who has nothing that makes a decision based on survival and based on need, basic need, or the person who defrauds, the person who cooks the books in a bank. What are, why are they breaking the law? It, why? It's not for a basic need. It's not so that they can feed their children because they have money. They have a weekly wage. They have a head to bed. They have a family. They have an education. So actually, if we're going to ever look at behavior and judge whether people have some sort of immoral deficit, I would switch it away from people that are making decisions out of survival. And I would switch it more to looking mm -hmm. at the people that have everything they need, everything, mm -hmm. and still choose to do wrong on somebody else or to defraud or, or to harm somebody or to act, you know. So it's about, it's about going back to that hierarchy of needs, you know. If you just go back to Maslow's hierarchy and, you know, having safety and security, once you have that foundation and then everything else builds on top of that. But if you're from, if you have a huge amount of privilege and you have that security and safety, they're who, they're, they're, it's their morals that we need to be questioning. Not the visible people that we see out on the street making decisions because of a failed system, you know? And based around survival. Yeah. And just really, just to keep, to survival stay alive. Survival I have more agreed. respect I like that, for yeah. someone, I have more respect for somebody that makes decisions based on survival that might not be accepted in society, but they, they make them decisions based on survival. And I don't mean just survival, I mean survival of their day, or their hour, you know, having to eat, whether it be addiction, whether it be feeding their family, whether it be paying the ESB bill. I have more respect for them than I do for people that make decisions out of greed when they already have everything that they could possibly need. Mm -hmm. What are your kind of thoughts? Not that you can definitely tell what's happening, but what are your thoughts for the future for homelessness? Like, is it I'm, a positive? I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. worried. I feel like um, I don't feel we're moving forward. I don't see progression. I see a government that's locked into an ideology that they refer to admit that they've got wrong. Um, it's market driven. It's, um, they think it's right. They think they're doing the right thing and they think they're going to be proven right. Um, and they're not. And I don't know what, how much more evidence they need. Yeah, they said like 90,000 recorded people. That's recorded. I don't know. I just don't, I Double don't, that. I don't know what evidence they need. Mm. I really don't. What number? You know, what, what is it? What amount of deaths? Yeah. You know, we have, we have people that, that are coming over as tourists and staying in Airbnbs that used to be family homes, that could be our homeless people's family homes, and we have the homeless staying in hotels. So the tourists are in houses and the homeless are in hotels. It's all to cater for the Do you know what I mean? Economy. It's an industry. Mm, it's an industry. It's becoming an right. industry. Poverty has become an industry. At the expense Addiction of has human life. Addiction has become an industry. Mm. Like you have women raising their kids in hotels 
we, we're robbing generations of ch children and we're talking about the adults that we see living on the streets or we're talking about adults that end up uh, uh, you know with criminal careers or adults that end up with addiction or adults that end up in the prison system and then when this generation of kids that are being shipped from B2B, B and B to B and B, school to school, no sense of safety or security, nowhere to cook their own meals, not hitting the same milestones, not being able to socialise with their friends after school, where do you think all them kids are going to be? Because of their fractured experience of life, because of their distrust in the state, because the state hasn't provided for them. Do you think they're just all going to flourish? And then when they're adults and we're wondering why we have some so many people in, in the prisons in prisons and we've wondered why so many people haven't to access mental health services. We're creating them. We're creating them. The state is creating the situation where people are going to experience adverse childhood experiences from the second that they're born. Yeah. That's it. That's my question was kind of about the future and it doesn't really look bright. It doesn't. In that aspect. It doesn't. For me, fine. No. Oh, I've, I've a roof over my head, I'm fine. Mm. But that's not okay. It's not okay just to, So let's just switch my perspective on life. That is me. And I'm out on the streets. Or I'm in LTA. Or I'm in STA, even worse. Or if I had a child and the ad that was on the TV recently, I hate seeing it. I hate seeing it as much as I hate seeing the troker ads. Mm. Or as much as I hate seeing the ads about animal abuse or anything like that. Like, this family were in a hotel and the two two young girls were in the they were sitting on the bed and the two parents were in the bathroom of the hotel having an argument and the girl is just closing her ears so she can't hear it and it's like the child all of that stress and all of that you know sadness is being filtered down to the child and she's like she's trying to you know filter it out mm. and I'm like she's nowhere to run she's nowhere mm. to go it's not like she can go out with her friends or they can say go no. on out for a few hours or go up to your room no it's all enclosed in this small environment and it nearly I know this sounds really terrible but it nearly made me feel like that's like a prison it is a prison it's like a prison it, it was it's, like it's, a four it's, by it's four institutionalisation it's what happens in a prison is you remove someone's liberty and you remove someone's freedom right whether we can we can argue or not whether that's appropriate punishment for people but that's another uh, debate but people's liberty is taken away and currently in Ireland because of neoliberalism and capitalism people's freedoms are being taken away but the walls are invisible you know we're, we're in hotels or we're in poverty or we can't go to school or we can't go to education we can't go to third level we can't get jobs that's a prison if, you're, if, if, if there's policies that exist that take your liberty away, it's, it effectively produces similar results in terms of lack of freedom, lack of agency and lack of autonomy. Which has a massive effect on your mental health yeah. in years to come. Totally, because you have to feel, people need to feel useful. Mm -hmm. People want to contribute Absolutely. to their families, yeah, to their lives, to society. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't got the opportunity to contribute, well then how do you, how do you feel a sense of yourself how do you even know who you are if you can't actually do the things that you love to do or, or enjoy to do or even a hobby even have a sleepover with your friends on your birthday you know in a or hotel. even celebrate your birthday yeah. you know it's, it's yeah. so sad like yeah. i mean and then we think of how lucky we are yeah. you know and not that i take it for granted because i don't and i never do but i think the next time i'm at the atm or the next time i'm passing them i think i'll have a different perspective and i'll, I'll have a different way of looking at it because i'm trying to take myself out of my body and just put myself in that situation yeah. So yes, drugs are 
damage in the body, but to an addict, they're actually they're actually surviving through the yeah. drugs because if you take and that's why we need yeah. to, like that's why we need to be advocating and, and pushing to um, have our safe injecting site open, mm -hmm. like our safe consumption rooms, mm -hmm. you know, because them concerns that you have would be lessened because you know that someone on the street that's using drugs, if they have a safe place to go where there's going to be a medical mm -hmm. intervention if mm -hmm. they OD and they have clean needles and they're consuming drugs in a safe environment, um, well then you're going to feel less responsibility because somebody is looking after them, you know, mm -hmm. and... Um, it's in a safe environment and they're yeah. in safe hands and you have yeah. that trust and confidence then. But I'm glad you brought that up just because just uh, I want to finish off in the direction of my last question, which I was thinking was around decrim. Yeah. You know, the decriminalisation of drugs and how much of an impact that can have on our society. In relation to drug decriminalisation, I suppose that was the first piece of legislation I ever tabled in the House. Um, and for me, it's um, very, very simple. People who use drugs don't need to be in the prison system. You shouldn't be punished for addiction. And we all acknowledge that addiction, especially problematic, chaotic drug use, is very focused in working class communities and communities that have experienced poverty and deprivation over many generations. And why would you want your son, your daughter, or wherever, someone in your family, would you rather them on front of a judge because they've been caught with a small amount of heroin in their pocket, cannabis, whatever it may be, um, do you want them in front of a judge or do you want them in front of a health-led response? Do you want someone assessing whether they need an intervention? Do you want someone uh, offering them to link them in with the local community service mm -hmm. instead? Um, because once that, that record starts building up, the opportunity for a person to enter recovery reduces, reduces, reduces. Because you have a criminal record, so many people want to go and study social work and they're being told no after the guard of vetting process it doesn't even i have friends who have phds they can't even get a job because mm -hmm. of old criminal records when they were in uh, when they used drugs and the saving like you think of it's 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 well over 80 percent of drug um charges that come before the irish court system is for possession not for supply it's for possession so you think of the amount of money it costs to get that person to court the amount of money it costs is probation if they get given probation or if they get prison or how much they then can't contribute to society in the future or become taxpayers because they're being locked out of the employment market. Legal aid. Look how much money is spent on legal aid in terms of drugs possession. So you've all this money and they say that the, the justice system talks about needing to, you know, kind of come down harder and... and, and put an end to violent crime because of uh, drug uh, drug related crime and stuff well then why are they focused on drug users like I mean if the justice, the justice committee wants to look at supply why are you spending all your resources on actually criminalising addiction criminalising marginalisation mm -hmm. you know the, the, the biggest concern for everybody in Ireland is actually violence people want to see an end to violence so how do we achieve that and do you achieve that by locking up a heroin addict and you actually increase blood-borne viruses in the prison system because you're putting people in that are going to use, they're going to access needles, they share needles. In Portugal, the blood-borne viruses went down after drug decriminalisation. Um, the, the, the relationship between the guards and the drug users can improve massively. Trust. You know, because mm -hmm. you, you, you do, you're not worried that they're just going to, you know, lock you up because they found you with a bag of heroin in your pocket, do you know what I mean? And it just makes no sense. Prohibition hasn't worked. Um, the war on drugs is not a war on drugs, it's a war on people and it's a war on poverty and it's a war on families and it's a war on people in addiction and 
it's not a war on drugs and that whole era of Nixon and American slogans you know just say no you know sure people have been telling us to just say no our entire lives but yet our drug use population is increasing the ties back to inequality drug use and drug abuse are two different things people could use drugs for the rest of their life and not cause an issue in their lives drug abuse happens primarily in communities like ours and you have to ask why that is and it's because of poverty and inequality and people needing to cope the lack of opportunity and yeah and just getting back to surviving the day you know so true i feel like you've opened my eyes to a lot of things now because i've heard it here now you said it to me now yeah. in the flesh and i really connected with it and i really kind of understood it because i might look at something one way another person might look at another way but you can't really look at it anyway unless you've really been there or you yeah. really know the people or lived the experiences. I mean, we can have opinions and we can have standpoints, but what do we really know unless we've been there and we've actually seen it firsthand? Yeah. Before I finish, I want to get your book because I want to just shout it out. Yeah. yeah, so I just want to shout out, um, Lynn has a book for anybody that's wondering how can they learn more about Lynn's story. I didn't get to capture it enough in, in an hour's conversation. Um, but People Like Me by Lynn, it's Irish Book Awards. It won non-fiction book of the year. I did. And this is my mum's book. Right. She gave it to me, so um, she'd be thrilled that you know I got to chat with you and actually got to share your experience and hear it from a face-to-face -face level, a more personal level than reading this book. I only started it last night, so I'll be reading the whole thing, and I'll probably <laughs> now be able to read it and be like, knew that, knew yeah. that. But look, it is what it is. Lynn, thank you so much thank for your time. Thank you very much. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Coffee. Conversation.